So I was looking at some of her little videos, and I loved the one where she said, and they're all like one minute long, two minutes at the most, and she has this one where she says, look how lucky I am. I found all these snails. <laughs> and I was just like, that's one of the things that endears my wife to my heart, is only her would put those two clauses together, being lucky and having snails. You know? <laughs> so, um, for those of you who don't live in the world of um, social media and stuff like that, on Monday this last week, the Milwaukee Journal, which we refer to endearingly as, um, well, unendearingly as the Milwaukee Urinal, um, did a front-page story entitled, Many White Evangelicals Don't Want the Vaccine. Okay? And I guess i got to put this thing on over here. So many white evangelicals don't want the vaccine, and the story starts out with two words, Matthew Chuella, and um, then talks about here. So they had called me, and they had also emailed me, and I didn't respond because I don't talk to dishonest people who are painting a false narrative. I just refuse to do it. Um, I've snubbed them all the way up to 60 minutes in the past because of what they're like. But um, it says, Matthew Chuella stood before a massless crowd. That would be all of you. <laughs> in a Brookfield Hotel ballroom on Easter Sunday and said he would never get the COVID-19 vaccine for one simple reason. Quote, the government has no right to put anything into my body or my children's bodies. Unquote. Amen? So, understand they mean this as an attack piece. <laughs> but isn't it amazing how time and time again what they think they're doing to make us look awful is like, we would have had to pay $30,000 to pay, take out an advertisement like that, right? And they make it the very first quote. Praise God. And he goes, Truella decried the false narrative of COVID-19, quote-unquote, and the, quote-unquote, mountain of lies used to propel it. He described religious leaders promoting the vaccine as, quote, blind as a bat. <laughs> My personal favorite out of the story. And he repeated the deceit, because they think it's deceit, that vaccines are experimental gene therapy. And again, there's so much out there from professionals talking about what's going on. And again, I'm not, I don't know what all it is. I just know if they want you to get it, you shouldn't want to get it. That right there tells me everything I need to know. And the bottom line for me is they shouldn't be telling us to put anything in our bodies nor should they be forcing us. And that's clearly where they want to go with this, is to make it a forced situation at some point. They are using the private sector to get people to comply right now with threats of you won't be able to shop, you won't be able to work, you won't be able to travel, you know, unless you get it. So anyways, let us stay true to Christ in the midst of all this. Tell people the truth, not aid and abet a lie, under the guise of love, which is really false love. We should wear the mask and act like Jojo the Circus Monkey in distance because we need to show love to our neighbors. That's not love. Aiding and abetting a lie is not what Christians do. Christians tell the truth. Amen? And so we have to tell people the truth about this situation and explain to them and show them how evil it all is. So some of you have been waiting, because I've done a number of topical sermons for us to finish Samson, and we're finally going to do that this morning. 
So you can open up to Judges chapter 16. The book of Judges chapter 16. This is the final chapter on Samson. Final chapter of four chapters. Samson covered four chapters. And as we've noted, sometimes the Lord uses men for his purposes, but they do not live right by him. And at times the Lord has to, we've noted, reach down to the bottom of the barrel to find someone to use because the state of mankind is just so awful. And we've seen that Samson has been one of those kinds of men. We have seen this throughout his life, and today we'll see how things finish with him. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, although we'll go through the whole chapter today. The scripture reads, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying in the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. They thought for sure they got him. The gates closed. He can't leave till in the morning. Verse 3, And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two gateposts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is A Warning About the Awful Consequence of Sexual Sin. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you for this time that we have to look at the life of Samson, to look at your scriptures. Help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. Use it in the hearts and minds of those gathered. Arrest the hearts of your people. May they understand the importance of holiness. When you live in the midst of evil, in the midst of wickedness, lawlessness that abounds in our nation, good being evil, evil being good, how important holiness matters, O Lord, to live right by you. Arrest their hearts with this, O God. May they do right by you, bringing glory to your name in the earth. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. Samson had a problem with women. We saw this early on in his life, and sadly we see it here at the end of his life. Remember chapter 14? In verse 1 it said, Now Samson went down to Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Saw a woman he liked, decided he wanted her, went against his parents, dishonored them, pursued her, and that went so well for him, right? Remember chapter 14? That did not go good at all for him. But nothing's changed with Samson all these years later. Understand, we're in chapter 16 now. About 20 years has gone by since chapter 14. And Samson hasn't dealt with his problem with women. Samson goes to visit a prostitute, as we see here in verse 1. He still has his wandering eye, still wants to fulfill his lusts. Samson should serve as a warning to all men. Samson should serve as a warning to all men. Sexual sin has been the downfall of many men 
And here we see it in Samson. I have known too many Christians over my 40-plus years of Christianity now who have fallen in this area of sexual sin. I've known too many churchmen who loved God, did right by him, spoke well, brought down because of sexual sin. It's the downfall of many, and here we see it in Samson, and may it serve as a warning to us men. In verses 2 and 3, it says, When the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Because of his gifting from God, Samson is able to get away. He has this supernatural strength. Because of his gift from God, he's able to get away. It is sad when a man uses his gifting from God for his own ends. And yet many a Christian has done this. Many a churchman has done this. So Samson gets away with his sin, but sin has a way of catching up with us. Sin has a way of catching up with someone. It has consequences. Sadly, often when men sin and get away with it, which means no one found out and there were no clear negative consequences, when men get away with it, it often emboldens them to more sin. And eventually sin ensnares and enslaves the person. Look at verse 4. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The valley of Sorek was talks about choice vines. Again, he wasn't to drink anything from the vine, and yet he keeps finding himself, like in chapter 14, all around where the fruit of the vine is plentifully available. And here in this area, he finds a woman that he loves. Samson still hasn't learned, has he? On to the next woman. And again... The Philistines want to capture and defeat Samson in this situation, just like was going on in earlier chapters. And it says in verse 5, And the lords of the Philistines came up to her, to Delilah, and said to her, Entice him, and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So whereas, back in chapter 14, you may recall with his Philistine wife, the Philistines came and threatened her regarding Samson's riddle, here they offered Delilah, who was most likely a Philistine, financial reward. And if we've learned anything over the last year, we've learned how much Americans are wed to their money. Even when it comes to their job. I gotta do it, it's my, I gotta keep my job. There's something about money and people. And Delilah, yeah, she loves money. She's offered this financial reward. They want her to find out the secret of Samson's strength by buying her off, and it is a huge sum of money. 
that she was being offered. Understand, she doesn't actually love Samson. She's one of these barfly type of women who goes from man to man. And Samson's one of these lustful, whoremongering men who goes from woman to woman. She doesn't actually love him. Women like Delilah love one thing, money. That's what they love. Men who go to strip clubs and massage parlors are either too stupid to figure that out, or they don't really care. They throw their money at the women there, and that is what the women there love, money. There is no, quote-unquote, love at such places. There's no true love there, no biblical love there. The only love there is the love of money. So since Delilah loves money, she views it as her ship has just come in, and she gladly tries. Verses 6 through 7 says, So Delilah said to Samson, Please, tell me where your great strength lies, and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Sounds plausible, right? (laughs) Sounds intricate enough with enough detail. I found out. It's true. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and they bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. The secret of his strength was not known. So understand from this, Samson doesn't think she loves him. He knows she does not love him by what has happened here. He is just happy with the illicit sex. He knows what she is doing. He knows that she was trying to get information out of him, and he lied to her in response. But he doesn't reconsider his sin, does he? He doesn't feel mortified. He doesn't flee temptation. Rather, he's encumbered with his lusts and seeing them fulfilled. He thinks his strength will get him out of any situation. And what he doesn't realize is he's playing with fire. Look at verse 10 as the narrative continues. It says, Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So as the narrative continues here, we notice how she manipulates. You have mocked me. You have told me lies. And he could have easily turned the tables on her because she's the one lying to have him captured by his avowed enemies. But instead of doing that, he continues to pursue her, lets her think she is getting what she wants while I'm getting what I want. That's what he's thinking. He's deluded in his sin. That's what sin does, deludes. So she continues with the little game, verse 11. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
and men were lying in wait, staying in the room. But he broke them off his arms like a thread. Again, they continue this illicit fake relationship. She has tried twice, failed twice, but she loves the money, so she's going to do it again. She's going to try this again. Verse 13 says, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head, that's why when you often see pictures of Samson, he has seven big locks on his head, into the web of the loom, so she wove it, tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he broke them from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Again, such intricate detail. She's believing it's true, but it's not. Again, she fails. But notice Samson has begun to slip. His pride, his arrogance, and his sin is undoing him. He actually mentioned his hair in this latest little escapade, didn't he? That's getting dangerously close to the truth of where his strength lies. And now she is going to up the ante with the manipulation. Look at verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. This is the old you-don't-love-me routine. When I was a young man, I would watch girls who were big on drama and dopey men who seemed to like it. You would watch the girls, you would watch the women who would play this drama, and the men would actually put up with it. And I always thought it was sickening. Despicable manipulation. Life is too short, life is very busy, full of responsibilities. Why would you put your time and effort into that? I could see nothing good that would come of that. Rather than her being your helper, she would be your anchor. She would use up your time and your life with her drama. Walk away from that. And then look at verse 16 as it goes on here. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Vexed to death. (laughs) Yeah, a woman's mouth can do that. The book of Proverbs even talks about it, how a woman can drive you crazy and it's better to sit in the corner of a housetop, you know, rather than her incessant blathering. He vexed, she vexed him to death. And so, like the dope that he is, he tells her where his strength lies. It says in verse 17 that he so vexed to death that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And she knows he has told her the truth this time, doesn't she? Look at the beginning of verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart. This is like the hallelujah song, what we got going on here, isn't it? She knows she has broken him, and it was because of the sex that she had him, his lust and her doing good in the area of seduction, talk, and physical intimacy was his undoing. His arrogance, his pride 
his lustful desires and giving in to them was his undoing. He was done. The big, arrogant, prideful, my wit and strength will get me out of any situation. Samson has fallen. Sin ensnared him, and sin has now enslaved him. And the end result will be death. Look at the rest of verse 18. It says, When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. So anxious, so greedy. Were they wanting to get Samson? They got the money in their hand. She obviously had conveyed something differently this time. They knew this was it. Goes on in verse 19 and says, Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out, notice his pride, as before at other times and shake myself free. Sin always produces pride within people. Pride is actually the root of all sin. You wonder why the Sodomites run around calling about pride and their pride fests? It's because they're spitting in the face of God with their sexual sin. Pride is the root of all sin. When you look at the prophets, they'll often talk about baby murder, adultery, all kinds of evils, and then they throw in there pride. And you're left thinking, pride? Pride is the root of it all. Pride is the root of it all. So it says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And here we see the awful consequence of sin. Here we see the awful consequence of sexual sin. I want you to notice three things in verse 21. Look what the scripture says here. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. Three things I want you to notice about this verse. Number one is they put out his eyes. Jesus talked about this, did he not? In Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Right? He didn't mean to literally pull your eye out. He was using hyperbole. He's trying to get his listeners to understand the awfulness of sin and not to imbibe upon it. Look at Job. He had something to say about eyes. Turn to Job, chapter 31. The book of Job, chapter 31. I want to read verses 1 through 12. Look what he said in verse 1 of chapter 31. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my steps and count all my steps? Pardon me. Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? 
If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at the neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity, deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all of my increase. And that's exactly what it is. It's a fire. It's a fire. You make a covenant with your eyes. You must. You have to bring your thoughts into captivity, as it says in the book of Corinthians, that we must bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? So here's the deal. You can't not have thoughts of sexual temptation. You're a human being. The thing is, what do you do with them when you get the thoughts? Do you dwell on them? Do you take them further? Do you commit adultery within your heart? What do you do with the thoughts? A preacher I once knew put it this way. He said, you can't prevent birds from flying over your heads, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that's very important to understand. It all begins with the mind. You must bring the thoughts captive. You must tame your thoughts and keep them pure. So the first thing I want you to know is they gouged out his eyes. Very symbolic. Very symbolic of how we need to make a covenant with our eyes. How we need to make sure that we do not allow our eyes to be used in a way to dwell on things that we should not be dwelling upon. Understand? And as someone who's been married for nearly 40 years now, there is a greatness and a goodness to remaining pure and right with one individual all your life. A goodness to it. Number two, notice he was bound with bronze fetters. This symbolizes how sin enslaves us. The Apostle Paul spoke of it in Romans 6. In verse 12 of Romans 6, he said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then he goes on and says in verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Samson had allowed sin to take hold in his life and enslave him, and it has led to death. Playing with sexual sin will enslave you. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Sexual sin encompasses all those. Samson had all three. Those who give in to temptation entertain it. It is a fire. And it will consume you. You must not feed the fire. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians that no temptation has taken 
hold of you, but such as is common to man. Such as is common to man, and God will help you overcome them. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Scripture reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then look what the Scripture admonishes us to do when we find ourselves tempted with sin. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. You find yourself in the throes of temptation, and it can be powerful. Overwhelming still, especially when it comes to sexual matters. You stop the other things, drinking, drugs, whatever, 21 days are good, right? Sexual stuff's different. It's right inside you. It's a God-given desire to have sexual relations. It's to be done in the confines of holy matrimony. You and your spouse and none other. And that's where you'll find the best delight in what God has created there. That is where you will produce children, build a home together, show responsibility, understand that marriage isn't just about your happiness, but that it's really about many more things of huge importance to your life, to the lives of your offspring, and to the life of society at large. So number one, they gouge out his eyes. Number two, he's bound with fetters. And number three, notice in verse 21, he became a grinder in the prison. He grinds the wheat and the grains. Do you understand that grinding was woman's work at this time? It was the work of a woman to do this. They did this to Samson to add to his humiliation. Not only was he now blind, not only was he now chained and shackled, but now he had to do women's work. He had to do the work of a woman. It was meant to humiliate him. And this is what sexual sin does to a man. It unmans him. It effeminizes him. He doesn't take on responsibility of a man once he's found himself given to this thing. He doesn't lead. He doesn't stand against evil and protect his wife, children, and home. He does not. He does not take on responsibility. When I was young, there was this song called Free Bird, and it's about a guy who goes from woman to woman. And supposedly this was a great life, and you should want to emulate that. The truth of the matter is, how free is a bird? Why not ponder that? Does free as a bird mean you just get to go wandering around irresponsibly, moving from woman to woman? A bird isn't really all that free. A bird's got to build a nest, don't he? He does. He has to build a nest. That's a lot of work. I've watched birds in my yard build nests. It's a long affair. Moving back and forth, little specks in their mouths, building a little nest. How free are they? They've got to look for food every day. Every day, all day, looking for food. How free is that? They have to constantly be worried about predators. You know, something could get me. How free is that? Free as a bird? Free as a bird. 
A real man takes on responsibility. That's what men do. They govern their homes properly. They hold their wives dear. They do those things which are necessary. They open the word of God to their wife, to their children. They sit as a family. They discuss these things and enjoy each other's company. You teach your children how to work, how to think, how to build a business, how not to be dependent on the state which wants to grab you and rule every inch of your life. When men go into sexual sin, all that's lost on them. What it becomes is fulfilling their next lustful desire. They become consumed with it. This is why E. Michael Jones wrote in his book, Libido Dominandi, the fact that governments like to give sexual license through law because they know that it enslaves men. It makes them more easy to govern if they're all consumed with their next sexual exploit rather than, and it's so terrible now, now people... The men don't even have to go to a strip club, don't even have to go to them. They just virtual, online, nonstop, talk to doctors, young men with huge physical problems because of the sexual sin they're involved in, virtually, online. Not understanding at all how a relationship with a woman even works or operates. About half of them come from fatherless homes, and the majority of those that still have a father in the house might as well not even be there because he's not doing any of his duties or responsibilities to teach them how to be men. You need to be totally different. You need to take his word serious. His word confronts every area of our lives, and it confronts every area of life. You need to be sure that your life counts and that you don't give it to selfish ambition. Look at the book of Proverbs, if you would, chapter 7. I don't have much more here to say, but I did want to look at Proverbs chapter 7. He says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Here you have your average American male dope who has no understanding of righteousness, has no understanding of the awful consequences of sexual sin. And he's going to learn the hard way. Because they all learn the hard way. The commercials don't show you the hard way. The movies don't show you the hard way. 99% of the time, it's a hard way. I'm a pastor. I've talked with many in my lifetime. It's a hard way to learn. It says in verse 10, And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot. Have you heard these women, Christian women, who've embraced uh, Christian feminism? I can dress however I want. The men are the ones who have to keep their, pure, their, their thoughts pure. Okay, the Bible has a lot to say about modesty for female dress. And no, you don't have to walk around in a burlap bag or act like you're somebody who came out of the 18th century or something like that. 
in order to show modesty, but everyone knows. Modesty is becoming of a Christian woman. And attire matters. No, you don't just wear whatever you want. Notice it says with the attire of a harlot. Yeah, it matters. And it is true, I've met men who do want women to walk around with burlap bags on. You know, like some of these crazy Muslims with their little veils over everything and completely covered. That does not work, men. (laughs) You would still have lustful thoughts. You do have a duty in the sight of Christ to keep your thoughts pure, to do right. Amen? And that's what's being discussed here. Not being taken in, understanding the situation, and removing yourself from it immediately. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. So she's going to make him feel like he's the only one she's ever been interested in, and he's dumb enough to believe it. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an, as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost his life. If those aren't sobering words, brothers, I don't know what is. In chapter 6 of Proverbs, in verse 20, it says, My son, keep your father's command. And do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. What have your parents taught you? Listen to what they've taught you regarding these matters. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. From the scattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? And this all has happened to Samson, a man of unusual, immense strength, reduced to a crust of bread. If you cannot control yourself, if you cannot think properly and behave properly, that is your future. That is what you will be reduced to, a crust of bread, utter destruction, Death. And this is why I said at the beginning of the sermon, 
Samson should serve as a warning to all men. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then as John goes on and says, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's where you want to focus your life. Now the Philistines think their false god, Dagon, had delivered Samson into their hands, but the reality was God had delivered Samson into their hands due to his rebellion against him. Well, they're too stupid to figure that out. And so it goes on here and says in verse 22 of Judges 16, let's go back there. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So they think it's Dagon, but the reality is it isn't Dagon who delivered Samson into their hands. It was the Lord because of Samson's rebellion. When there's evil in the land, holiness matters. When there's evil in the land, holiness matters. Live your lives in holiness unto the Lord, brothers and sisters. Draw close to him, do right by him. Do those things dear to his heart. Trumpet his law, word, and gospel to the nation. In verse 25 here it says, So it happened when their hearts were merry. It literally means, or could be translated, I should say, when their hearts were good. They had had a few drinks. Some of them were probably drunk. Others of them were just feeling good. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. Nothing good ever comes from getting drunk, and these people are about to realize that. goes on here, and it says, Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once. Now this is good. We see Samson in his final moments crying out to God. But you know what wasn't good? Is his motivation for crying out to God. All his life it's been about Samson, and even in his final moments it's going to be all about Samson. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. For my two eyes. 
was all about Samson, all his life, all the way to the end. And it's not to be that way. We're to put him first, we're to put others second. We come third. I know that's totally against the thinking of this world where you just look out for me, myself, and I, look out for number one. So what if evil's in the land? I want to get as much money as I can. Well, there's money to get. Disturbing to watch people. Weird. It says in verse 29, And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Now this is actually the end of the book of Judges in the sense of historical concurrency. This is the end of the book. What remains after this are two vignettes that happened much earlier during the time of the Judges. The problem with the Philistines continued to go on for years. And because what they had seen in the lawlessness of decentralized government, and there was lawlessness because the people weren't living in obedience to Christ, they all wanted the monarchy. They all wanted a king to defeat the Philistines once and for all and to lead them, something God did not want them to do. He demanded obedience to himself. He still had magistrates in the midst of things to keep order in society and to adjudicate matters. But he wanted their allegiance to be first and foremost to him. But they wanted a king like everyone else. Samson was at the bottom of the barrel. Things continued on, and the monarchy began. When we look at these final two vignettes, there's a lot in there, in these final four chapters, five chapters of the book of Judges. And I look forward to preaching to you from there. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, we thank you for this time that we had in your scriptures, sobering as it was. Lord, I ask and pray that you use what I declared today for good in the hearts and minds of all those gathered here. Father, that we would live our lives as Christian men and as Christian women, that we would do right by you. Lord, that when we are in temptation, that we would, O oh God, go to you for help in a 